In the fall of 2007, a video was broadcast on the Al Jazeera News Network. A thin man in his early 20s sits on the ground in a field somewhere in the East African country of Somalia. He's wearing camouflage, and there's a hand grenade strapped to his left front pocket. He's looking directly into the camera, but his face is wrapped in a green scarf so that only his eyes and a flash of white skin are showing. All Muslims of America, take into deep consideration the example of Somalia. The man is the mouthpiece for a new Islamic militant group in Somalia called Al-Shabaab, which means the youth in Arabic. After 15 years of chaos and oppressive rule by the American-backed warlords, your brothers stood up in order to establish peace and justice in this land. The camera cuts to dozens of African fighters armed with AK-47s and grenade launchers. What the video doesn't make clear is why their spokesman appears to be a white American. The story quickly circulated online, and even though the American had been careful not to reveal his identity, in the small southern town of Daphne, Alabama, they knew exactly who he was. I came home from work one day and Ernie, he was as white as a sheet. So what is going on? He's like, Mom, you need to watch this. The minute we heard the voice, we knew that it was Omar. Now it all makes sense. He's over there to fight. He, he's not coming back. And we thought, oh my God, what is going on? What is going on? What is going on? The man in the video was Omar Hamami. He would become one of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. I would spend years chasing his story. I tracked his life from Alabama, where he had attended a Southern Baptist church and been his high school class president, to the front lines of a guerrilla war in Africa. And then I heard from Omar himself. Over time, the relationship that developed between us would blur the lines between journalism and friendship and wreck the tidy story I had told myself about the boundary between good and evil. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode 1, The Matrix. I first became aware of Omar Hamami in 2009, when he showed up in a propaganda video that was put out by Al-Shabaab. In this video, there's no scarf hiding his face. He looks like a skinny Che Guevara. His brown hair is long, and much of his face is covered by a young man's first beard. At points, Omar speaks directly to the camera. He's recruiting foreigners like himself to come join Al-Shabaab. So if you can encourage more of your children and more of your, your neighbors and anyone around you to send people like him to this jihad, it would be a great asset for us. Later, he appears to lead Al-Shabaab fighters in setting an ambush. We're waiting for the enemy to come. We're camping, but... Uh, Omar looks white, and his accent is so clearly American. And yet there he is, sitting in Somalia with an AK-47, surrounded by East African fighters hanging on his every word. Weird that the numbers are uh, close to a thousand or more. We try to blow up as many of their vehicles as we can, and kill as many of them as we can, and take everything they got on him, inshallah. His face cracks into a smile, as if he feels self-conscious saying all these things on camera. The picture cuts away to a shot of the bush. The enemy approaches. In the U.S., Omar's story was quickly picked up by the media. Omar Hamami, 
a U.S. citizen born and bred in the American South, who is now a leader of a terrorist organization affiliated with al-Qaeda that's fighting in Somalia. Catherine, what have you learned about this guy? 25 years old, American. He's known in jihadist circles as Abu Mansur, Mansur al-Amariki, or the American. And I found his story fascinating. Omar had grown up in a small town in Alabama, going to a Southern Baptist church. Until midway through high school, his life had been almost a cliché of American normalcy. He played soccer, Little League baseball. He even took the prettiest girl in school to homecoming. And then, somehow, he had found his way to Somalia, where he joined up with al-Shabaab, a group designated a terrorist organization by the State Department. I'd actually reported from Somalia in 2006, just a few months before Omar had arrived there. At the time, I was a TV correspondent for a program called Vanguard on Current TV. We were sort of Vice News before Vice News existed. We tried to report on stories that we thought the rest of the media was missing. We interviewed cartel hitmen, Russian skinheads, folks like that. I wanted to do a story about Omar, but by the time his videos started attracting attention, the situation in Somalia had gotten worse. More than 6,500 people have been killed in fighting in Somalia in the last 12 months. Al-Shabaab was in a running gun battle with Ethiopian and African Union troops. American drones fired missiles at suspected terrorists, and suicide bombers were beginning to target the cities. It was just too chaotic and dangerous for me to go back. Security officials implicate Al-Shabaab in the assassination of aid workers and in a string of bomb attacks in Mogadishu. Still, I knew I wanted to figure out a way to tell Omar's story. A young American who had traded in his middle-class life for a life of struggle in one of the most dangerous parts of the world. A guy with something to prove, chasing his ideals. There was enough of me in there to make me really want to understand the choices he'd made. I had no way to reach Omar, but I knew that his family was still living in Alabama. So, I got on a plane. I landed in Mobile and drove a half hour east to Daphne, a small suburb on Mobile Bay that calls itself the Jubilee City. The streets are lined with massive live oaks, the kind film directors put in movies so that you'll think Old South. I found Omar's parents' place at the end of a cul-de-sac. The curtains were drawn tight, but on the mailbox, it said in large white letters, Shafiq Kamami. I got a quick glimpse of Omar's father, Shafiq, when he looked at me through the window of his front door. He had glasses and a dark salt and pepper beard. I said that I was a reporter. He told me to go away, that he couldn't talk to me. Before flying down, I'd also reached out to Omar's sister, Dina, on Facebook. Back at my rental car, I checked my phone to see if she'd written back. Nothing. On the highway, I passed an Applebee's and a Kmart. I pulled into the Hooters because I figured maybe someone there went to high school with Omar. The bartender told me that while he didn't know Omar well in high school, he did just run into his best friend, Bernie, at Walmart. The bartender even knew the street he lived on. On Bernie's street, there were names on all the mailboxes except for one. I asked some kids playing street hockey if they knew who lived in that house. You mean the Jews, one of them asked? Jews? Yeah, the ones with the Star Wars outfits. Do you mean Muslims? Yeah, them, the kid shrugged, whatever. Bernie wasn't home, but later that night, we managed to connect, and he invited me over to dinner with his family. He lived with his mother, his wife, and two kids. Cook dinner, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Okay, thank you. Ah, I'm his neck. Sunburn. Sunburn, sunburn. Bernie was tall and slender with blonde hair and a beard. 
He and his family are practicing Muslims. Omar converted to Islam during his sophomore year, and soon after, inspired Bernie to convert as well. It's kind of hard for you to, like, envision the guy as a terrorist, you know, if you, like, lived with a guy and, you know, were, like, good friends with the guy for so many years. You just, when you see him, you don't see, like, the terrorist. You're like, oh, hey, that's my friend that I haven't seen in a couple years. But, uh, Bernie's mother, Sharon, had converted to Islam, too. When I met her, her head was covered with a black hijab patterned with tiny flowers. For Sharon, Omar wasn't a terrorist. He was the person who'd started her on the path to putting her life back together. She told me that before she became Muslim, she hadn't been the greatest mother to Bernie. He saw me drunk a lot, which is very painful. Um, You know, I had a lot of shame. I felt that, you know, he didn't have a lot of guidance. He didn't have a lot of supervision. And he needed a mom, and I wasn't here. And there was Omar. Sharon had an even harder time than Bernie understanding how the Omar she knew in Daphne became one of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. He's the boy who helped me learn to pray. And that's, you know, I just can't wrap my head around thinking that he would be a part of hurting innocent people. I just, I just can't, I can't fathom that. Bernie and I watched the video of Omar at the ambush. As they entered into our ambush, we began opening up with uh, a small arms fire. This is the guy that everybody knows is Abu Mansour al-Amriki, but I know him as uh, Omar Hamami because yeah, that's the guy who I, you know, kind of like grew up with in high school. He was a kind of a normal dude. I mean, kind of like a, a jovial, really charismatic, cool guy. Main objective is to die as a martyr. So the fact that we got two uh, martyrs is nothing more than a victory in and of itself. If you, I guess, like mute the video and don't read the subtitles and just kind of like watch it a little bit, it's just like, uh, seems like your old, old friend just with a different pair of clothes on. Over the course of the next four months, I spent a lot of time with Bernie. We went to their high school and the Walmart where they both worked. We even flew to Toronto to see where he and Omar had lived for about a year before moving on to Egypt. Egypt is where they separated. Bernie coming back to the U.S., Omar disappearing, eventually turning up in Somalia. In the long piece about Omar I made for Current TV, I tried to paint a more complicated picture of him than just the American-born terrorist. But I was never totally satisfied. I was able to follow Omar's path from Alabama to Canada to Egypt and then to Somalia, and al-Shabaab. What I couldn't really get my head around, though, was why he had chosen that path. To answer that question or any of the others I still had, I would have needed to get to Omar somehow. But not even U.S. intelligence seemed to be able to find him. It would take another two years for me to get my answer. As it turned out, I had it backwards. I didn't need to find Omar. It was Omar who needed to find me. In March of 2012, it had been two years since my piece on Omar Hamami had aired. In the meantime, my network, Current TV, had decided to stop making documentary features and laid off almost everyone who worked on my show. Now, instead of getting on a plane to go off to a war zone, 
I was supposed to be finding an angle for a story about the upcoming presidential election. But then, a video popped up on YouTube. It was Omar Hamami. But this video was not al-Shabaab propaganda. It was titled, An Urgent Message. Omar is sitting on the floor, alone, in front of a black flag with white Arabic script. He looks thin and scared. To whomever it may reach from the Muslims, from the Oman Southern Reiki, I record this message today because I feel that my life may be endangered. The rest of it is in Arabic, but the video is a cry for help. Omar Hamami, the poster boy for jihad, is saying that he thinks his life might be in danger. He's worried that people are trying to kill him and that those people are his fellow fighters in al-Shabaab. The story only got stranger from there. Rumors started floating around online that Omar had been killed. Omar's mother, Deborah, even called me. For years, his parents had refused to speak with me, but now she wanted to know if I had any hard information about her son. I didn't. I spent days combing online jihadi forums, trying to make heads or tails of what actually was going on. And then, I got an email. I admire your work. That's my producer, Brent Renault reading the email. I have a copy of an autobiography written by Omar Hamami. Should I send it to you? Whoever wrote it didn't sign the email. And honestly, journalists get a lot of weird emails. I didn't think a whole lot of it, but I wrote back and told them to go ahead and send me the autobiography. I asked if it was them or Omar who wrote it. The next morning, I got an answer. It was definitely written by him. It's an autobiography. I stared at my phone, trying to make sense of what I was reading. Either somebody was messing with me, or they had somehow gotten their hands on a book Omar had actually written. Or the person emailing me was Omar Hamami, back from the dead. I called back Omar's mother, Deborah. I asked her for details about Omar's childhood, things only he would know. I didn't tell her why I was asking, and she didn't pry. I then asked whoever was writing me the emails for Omar's sister's middle name. Dina's middle name is Lutfia. I asked for the names of his family pets growing up. Willie, Polo, Freckles, Hobie, and Haley. Every answer was right. Omar was alive. And even though the person writing me kept insisting that he was just Omar's spokesman, I was almost positive it was actually Omar himself. I sent another email. Okay, you're the real deal. Wow. I was just talking to Deborah yesterday. She misses Omar with all her heart. Omar says you look like Dina's husband and thinks you're probably a cool guy. That's why I decided to contact you. You'll really break my heart if you're some kind of closet neocon. Over the course of several days and dozens of emails, Omar mostly refused to answer my questions. Well, the first thing you should know is that this conversation is 100% watched by the whole alphabet. He meant the CIA, the FBI, the NSA. I had downloaded Tor and started using a VPN to block my IP address, but I knew that I had already left a huge digital trail. The second thing is Omar doesn't have any people on the ground anymore. The situation is best described as a power struggle where Omar is caught in the middle, clanless, misunderstood, and yet still adamant about his opinions. It was the same story he had hinted at in the mysterious video he'd posted to YouTube. It appeared he was in danger because of some disagreement he'd had with the rest of al-Shabaab. By the way, do you get in trouble for having contact with terrorists? 
It was bizarre to be trading emails with Omar. One moment, he would tell me about how his life was in danger. The next, he'd be complaining about how hard it was to find free ebooks online. Amazon is sucking everyone's lifeblood, and I don't know where in the world I'd find a Kindle Fire. Or he'd ask me personal questions. You know Omar's deceased dog's name. He should probably get to know at least something about you as well. I told him that I lived in L.A. with my wife, Julie, who was a humanitarian aid worker, that she was the love of my life, but we rarely saw each other. I get the feeling you guys are the nonviolent, peace, love, harmony type. I hope you and Julie grow old, fat, and toothless together. However friendly Omar could be, he got impatient if I didn't reply immediately. It's helpful when you give me a heads up about when your next reply will come. When you don't, I sometimes sit for like an hour staring at the screen, LOL. Silence is not the expected result of such staring. It's all good though. I'll be dozing off in about two hours. Toodles. Toodles? I tried to convince Omar to let me come to Somalia to interview him on camera. He wasn't buying that plan. The only thing that could come out of you trying to link up with Omar is getting auctioned off by the Shabbat. And Omar might not come out of that situation too well himself. At least for now. If Omar lives through the next few months, which has a lot to do with getting this bio out, things could become more flexible again. In the meantime, Omar wanted something from me. Presently, Omar is dead to the world and has no voice. If people see Omar as the good guy and the victim, and they know that he's still alive, it means having him disappear after that becomes that much harder. Omar's plan, as far as I could make it out, was for me to be a kind of megaphone he could shout through to keep himself from being killed. Look at it this way. It'll help your career. And for Omar, it might save his head. I didn't want to be Omar's megaphone, and I didn't really understand how the release of his autobiography could save his life. But at the same time, I didn't want to miss the story. He awaits your input. And like I said, there's little time. So the sooner, the better. Eventually, we settled on a compromise. He would send me the autobiography he'd offered me, but he would also answer a long list of questions I had for him. Except Omar was done with having our conversation over Gmail. Like I said, if it gets in the wrong hands, it could be Omar's death, especially now without encryption. Omar wanted us to go dark. From a hotel room where I'm staying in New York, I begin trying to follow his instructions for how to download Al-Qaeda's secret encryption program. All right, so what's going on here, man? Um... I invite a friend of mine who's a TV producer to record what happens. The only camera I have with me is an iPad. And my friend starts to shoot. Who are you chatting with? Um, no, I mean, uh, hold on, let me just... (laughs) On the shaky video is a much younger version of myself, sitting at a desk in a room at a downtown hotel. Next to me is a half-empty bottle of red wine. I have G-Chat open on one laptop where I'm talking to Omar. He's insisting that I run the encryption program off a different laptop that's never been hooked up to the internet. I look exhausted and confused. Omar has, you know, reached out to me, um, or somebody claiming to be representing Omar, and my heart is pounding. We've basically been going. I feel like the police or the FBI will kick down the door at any moment. Just sitting here as Omar, or or who's ever claiming to be Omar, is writing and trying to describe to me how to do encryption on my computer, and he's just going on and on and on and on and on. Do you think it's really him? Yeah, it's definitely him. What makes you say that? 
I've asked him all kinds of questions. He says that he does he does reference that my documentary got most of it right. No kidding. He saw your doc. He saw my doc. Yeah, he's a fan. Huh. How weird is that? That's scary. Yeah. How did he see it? Guys clearly got internet access. Yeah. Do you feel conflicted as an American? No. Because my job is to... I don't look at the world as good versus evil. I look at motivation. And I believe that this is... What I want to know, and I've been trying to find out with him, is what went what went wrong. How did you end up in this situation? Because you were a smart kid, and I still believe that you're incredibly smart. Is it your ego? Do you really believe all this, this stuff? Because part of me doesn't really think that he does. I don't know what's going on. That's what I need to find out from him. But before you can do that, you've got to jump through some technical hurdles. I've got to basically uh, try to get off the grid as much as possible and you know, block IP addresses, start using encrypted code, start storing things on flash drives. He's been a good teacher so far. I'll be plugged into the, uh, the underground jihadi network in no time. It takes all night, but suddenly my computer screen goes black. Yeah, check it out. What have I gotten myself into? A green door appears on the screen. Oh, look at this. For, what, what, what? Look at the logo. It's AK-47 with a key on the end. In English, it says, Mujahideen Secrets. I type in a code, the key Omar's given me. The screen is flooded with lines of Arabic script. I don't even know what I want from him. I've been waiting for this guy for so long, I finally got it, and I'm like, fuck. And then, I'm in. Omar greets me with a reference from the Matrix. Well, Mr. Anderson, Smith is waiting. How does it feel to be chatting with one of the world's most wanted men? Oh, it's totally surreal. But at the same time, I kind of feel like I'm talking to a friend of mine. That's the weirdest feeling about it. American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel, of Hidden Door Media. Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business Affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions, Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. Special thanks to Aaron Kelly and everyone else who made this show possible. Coming up on American Jihadi. How did Omar Humami, a kid raised in Alabama, surrounded by McDonald's and Chick-fil-A's, become an Islamic terrorist? All right, so I'm on my way right now to Omar's parents' home. The documentarian Christoph Putzel was contacted recently by Humami. I'm going to let them know that I've been communicating with their son. Who now fears for his life. Hi, Shafiq. I always told him to just be a man of honor and stick to his principles. 
I'm just so thrilled he still remembers us and all that good stuff we did. Blow by blow, crime by crime, only gonna add to my avenging rhymes. Invasion by invasion, attack by attack.